All right, so I want to begin this morning by talking to you Browns fans. There's some Browns fans out there? Hopefully a few. Yeah, good. So last week, Stings, that there's no getting around that. You were in a position to pull off an upset on the road against the defending AFC champions, the Kansas City Chiefs, and Baker Mayfield couldn't get it done in the last drive. And I wonder if you're questioning if the Browns have what it takes this year. And I want to ask you some questions. Has Mayfield been getting better each year, and is he starting to look like a franchise quarterback? Yes. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Do you have the best running back duo in the NFL in Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt? You do. you got two guys that can possibly run for over 1,000 yards each this season. Do you have one of the best defensive lines in the NFL? That's what the pundits are saying. And has your defense been revamped from last year? I think it has. I think it's looking a lot better. You Browns fans need to recognize what is true. You need to recognize that your team has a lot going for it. And I know you might be discouraged after last week, but you finally, and I honestly mean this, it finally seems like you have a team with the foundation to make a deep run into the playoffs. Did I get an amen? <laughs> Maybe not. I think you got the foundation. That's kind of what I got for today. We're going we're gonna to wrap things up. We get back for 1 o'clock kickoff against the Texans. Someone out there is thinking this is the best sermon in four years. <laughs> Our passage for today begins with a series of ifs that kind of sound like questions. It sounds like Paul is saying, if you as a church are like this, then you have what it takes to be united. But Paul's not asking the church in Philippi questions. He's, ask, he's not asking, do you agree with what I'm saying? Paul's trying to get the church in Philippi to recognize what is true. Just like I'm trying to do with you Browns fans, to recognize in your discouragement what is true. And so same, same as my questions to you Browns fans, as Paul is beginning this passage, he wants you to be nodding in agreement to each of these things. So if you have any encouragement with being united in Christ. At this point, Paul wants you nodding. He wants the church in Philippi to be nodding their heads. Because you know God has been steadfast with you even in times of trouble. If any comfort from your love, from his love. You know, Paul's saying, have you not felt the deep comfort of love from me and from God? Yes, you have. Nod your head. If any, com- any, if any common sharing in the spirit. Are you not bound together with the very spirit of God? If any tenderness and compassion, do we not love each other? Paul is saying, you got all that. You have unity with Christ. You have comfort. You have love. You have tenderness. You have compassion. You have everything you need to be united as a community of faith. You just have to recognize what is true, and then you got to execute. Last week, we talked about this, this, these, this group of Jesus followers in Philippi, how they're getting attacked by the outside. We don't know exactly what is attacking them, but we know it must be serious because Paul is admonishing them to hold the line, to stand firm, rally around the gospel. And now he's going to pivot in this passage, and he's going to turn to looking at threats within the church. And we don't, again, like the outside threats, we don't get a lot of details about what's happening in the church. 
But towards the end of Philippians, we're going to get a little bit of a snapshot of what might be happening. We have these two women, Yodia and Syntyche, who have worked faithfully for Paul in the advance of the gospel. And something has happened between these two women. And Paul is going to plead with these women, be of the same mind of the Lord. So whatever's causing disunity with these women, it seems to be probably kind of filtering out into the church. And it seems to be there's a threat to the community. And this is one of the major themes in Paul's letter to the Philippians. He's going to keep calling them back again and again to unity. It might be a little bit of a stretch for us today to imagine kind of what hostility on the outside of the church might be so strong that we as a congregation might be in danger of collapsing. But internal strife, disunity within a faith community, that's not hard to get your minds around. Like, we get that. Most of us have probably experienced or seen that firsthand in our lives. Let me ask you a question here. How many stories have you heard of churches who have collapsed because of conflict from the outside? From threats from the government, from the media, from secular culture, from persecution? In our, in our country, how many stories have you heard that church is just too much and the church collapses? How many stories have you heard of that churches have collapsed because of internal problems. These stories are everywhere. I listened to a podcast this summer called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. It's about a mega church up in, that was up in Seattle, Washington. And this church in the 90s was just a home Bible study. And within 10, 15 years, it had grown to a church uh, that had 15 locations in four U.S. states, had over 100 paid staff. It was one of the most influential churches in America. At the start of 2014, in all its branches, there were over 12,000 people worshiping on Sunday morning. Each week they were getting like 260,000 views of the sermon. Very, very influential church. And there have been problems in the congregation that have been brewing for a few years related to particularly the lead pastor. But again, 2014, at the beginning of the year, they've got 12,000 people worshiping together. That fall, a group of uh, elders at Mars Hill released a report an investigation that they had conducted on their lead pastor of accusations of bullying and intimidating behavior that was made by 21 past elders. Okay, They released that in like September. January 1st, 2015, Mars Hill officially closes. That's a dramatic example of how quickly a church can collapse due to internal strife and abusive relationships. But we know this plays out all over in little churches like ours all over the country. Maybe it's a piano in the sanctuary. Maybe it's a doctrinal position. Maybe it's a conflict in leadership. There's internal conflict, and the church collapses due to that internal conflict. And maybe, maybe if it doesn't close the doors, that church is so scarred by what happened, they can never fully recover. Internal strife, hostility, disagreements, power struggles, a culture of a cult of personality around the lead pastor— these pose way more of a threat to our communities of faith than anything from the outside, at least in our country. And not just a threat to our institution, it's a threat to our witness as followers of Jesus. Tertullian, was a, who was an early church father in the second century in North Africa, at this time the church was experiencing explosive growth. And he wrote that when the Romans saw the kind of love that the Christians had for each other, they would say, see how they love one another and how they are ready to die for each other. 
Like sometimes I wouldn't be surprised if people look at us and are tempted to say, see how they grate on each other. They seem ready to kill each other. Internal conflict and disunity poses serious threats to our communities of faith. Then and now, Paul knows this. That's why he's going to pull out every rhetorical stop he has to try to get this community in Philippi to unite. He says, you got everything it takes to unite as a, as a community of faith and to grow into maturity. You have all the pieces. So I want you to make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one mind. So what's Paul saying? Same love, same spirit, one mind. I want you to be united. Notice a couple things here. I don't know about you, but to my ears, when Paul is basing all this on his own joy, it sounds like a little bit like an ego trip for Paul. It sounds like a win one for the Gipper speech. Like, you can do this. Do it for me. Do it for my joy. Don't let me down. But as Lynn Koek points out in her commentary, to our modern ears, we have failed to appreciate the scope of investment the master teacher gives to one's disciples in the culture. So think about Jesus. Jesus had this relationship of a master and disciples. How much did Jesus invest in his disciples? Like, was it like a once a week membership class or a once a week discipleship class? No, Jesus poured his whole life into these guys. Three years. He was with them constantly, night and day. And now Paul has poured his whole life into this community in Philippi. And both Paul and the Philippians would agree that Paul being joyful... The joy springing up in Paul as a result of their unity and maturity of faith, that's going to be of the utmost importance. Like think about, think about your own life. Think about teachers or mentors you've had in your own life who you deeply admired. And maybe they, they, they picked you out and they said, I'm going to pour my life into you. I'm going to pour my time and my energy and my intellect and my wisdom and my resources into you. If you've ever had someone like that in your life, when they get excited about your success – That's not just a joy for them. That's a joy for you. Paul is pinning his joy on the maturity of faith of the church in Philippi. And I think that that has a lot to say to us as leaders and congregations, but I think all of us in this congregation. What do we pin our joy to? Is it to the classic butts and budgets metric where we count how many butts are in the pew and how big our budget is? Like that's kind of our default is that, is that how we measure success? Or, I mean, let's be honest. I would, I mean, we get pretty full sanctuary. I would love it if every, this, every pew in this whole sanctuary was full. I think you would love it too. But if I had five people who I saw in the congregation were growing in their faith, were growing in their maturity, I would take that over 50 people who were just killing time for, before kickoff. What brings me joy is when I look at you and I see growth and I see maturity. I see us growing as a congregation in unity and love. That's what gives me joy. I think that's what what gives uh, Paul joy. It gives me joy that people might look at Midway and say, see how they love each other. I think people have looked at Midway and said that. That, that this unity and love that we share as a congregation, that they might, might beg the question, I wonder what's different about these people. And that what we might be able to say, what's different about us is this guy, Jesus. That's, what different, that's what's different about us. And we invite you to come along and join us in following this guy, Jesus. That's a joy. Second thing I want you to notice, 
What is the path that Paul lays out to achieve this unity? Okay, how do you get there? Like, I think every congregation would love this secret recipe for unity, to be of one spirit and one mind. How do you achieve this? I think at this point, I would expect Paul to tell them, you just need to think alike. You just need to believe the same things, and then you're going to have unity. And don't get me wrong, Paul, Paul, you'll see it time and time again in his letters, Paul cares about beliefs, he cares about false teachers, he cares about false teaching. But that's not what he says here. That's not what he says is the path to unity. Can you put the first slide here? Look what Paul says. This is Paul's path to unity. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. The path to unity in this community of faith for Paul is to subordinate my own interests for the interests of others. It is to lower my interests, what's best for me, and raise up other people's interests, what's best for them. And the the word that Paul uses to to talk about this raising up is upera erko, upera erko in, in, in Greek, which means above I. So I'm to put people above myself. I'm to value and honor their interest above my own. And as I was thinking about this, I'm wondering, probably this letter in, in, in to the Philippians was probably read out loud, and I'm wondering if someone wanted to stand up and raise their hand and say, is there another path to unity? Because if you really stop and think about this, this is a hard way to unity. Like, it may not be hard for like three minutes to try to put your own interest above someone else, but try to do that again and again and again. Like, can we just pass around a statement of beliefs and have everyone sign that? Like we could put around, we could, we could get the confession of faith in a Menai perspective. We could have every person signed by it, and then we're unified, right? <laughs> Good, you should be laughing at that. Where's Paul getting this? Where's he getting this? Like you got to raise other people and you got to lower yourself. He's getting it from Jesus. Whoever wants to be first must be last and the servant of all. Jesus didn't just instruct us; he modeled it. He washed their feet. So again, though, how do you do this? I, I think I would, we wouldn't refute that. Jesus, of course Jesus put interest above, of others above himself. But how do you actually do that? See, think about it too. In our culture, I talked a little bit about this the first week. At least humility is a virtue. At least putting the, uh, the interest of someone else above your own, at least that's an ideal to strive for, even if we don't really do it. But think about how this would have sounded to the Philippians. They live in this Roman colony. That for them, humility is not a virtue. Humility means humiliation. Those words are almost exactly alike in Greek. Humility and humiliation. And in that culture, nothing was more important than status and honor. If you remember, I showed you this quote from Cicero the first week. Let me show you again. If you have it, you have that second slide? All right, I'll just read it for you. By nature, we yearn and hunger for honor. And once we have glimpsed, as it were, some part of its radiance, there is nothing we are not prepared to bear and suffer in order to secure it. Okay, Nothing we hunger more than honor. That's the culture that Paul is writing this letter into. After a person's basic needs are taken care of, the one thing that they put all their energy and power into is to increase their honor and to avoid public dishonor for themselves and their family. And the church is not... And Philippi is not just being asked to do something hard. They're being asked to do something that sounds ridiculous. To give up the most valuable commodity in their culture, the thing that they most hunger for, 
honor. And as I, you know, have preached for a number of years now, I often, I sometimes come into passages which seem to attack and contradict the things that we hunger most for in in our culture, but are contradictory to the way of Jesus. And I know this temptation as a preacher is just to say, I know this is hard. Okay, Jesus is asking us some really hard stuff here. We're just going to have to try harder, right? We're going to have to buckle down this week and try a little harder. Paul doesn't do that. He doesn't say, I know this is really hard. You've been taught all your life to seek after honor, but I'm going to tell you to do the opposite, and you're going to have to try really, really hard, okay? All right, let's do it. What's Paul going to do? What's his game plan here, right? Paul is trying to move them towards unity. What's the game plan for Paul? I'm going to draw, I think there's some really good stuff that Joseph Hellerman does in his book, Embracing Shared Ministry. So for the next few minutes, I'm going to draw from that. See, in our culture, we mostly see honor as attached to the individual. So, for example, if I get a job promotion or something really good happens to me that brings honor, that honor is mostly limited to me. Like my siblings, my brother in Nashville and my sister in Maryland, I don't think they're getting super excited and basking in my honor, right? But in the world of Philippi, they had what anthropologists call group culture, strong group culture, meaning the good of the group takes priority of the individual over the individual goals and happiness. So me getting a job promotion is less about the honor it brings to me as an individual and more about the honor that it brings to my family. And there's, you know there's many, many cultures today who still have this strong group orientation. I mean, think about an extreme is honor killings, where someone in a family will actually kill another member of the family because they believe they have brought dishonor or shame to the family name. This is the, this is the culture in Philippi. Every part of life, business, politics, sports, marriages, dinner invitations, every part of life, you're going to strive to increase your honor at the expense of someone else's, okay? But there's one exception. The honor game is off limits in the family, okay? The honor game is off limits among siblings. So I can compete with families outside of my own for honor, but it's not okay for me to compete with my brother for that. And even though we don't live in this, we don't live in a culture that has this strong group culture, but we get this. In healthy families, parents don't pit siblings against each other for parental affection or for affirmation. What do healthy families do? They encourage siblings to rejoice in one another's victories and grieve when their sibling experiences defeat. So you can compete for honor in this culture, but only outside the family. Okay, so what's Paul gonna do? What's his move here? He's got this community of believers. They come from all these different families. Now they're part of this thing, this Jesus movement. Normally they are trained to compete for honor with each other. What's he going to do? He's asking them to do what comes most unnatural to them, to lift up somebody else, not in your family, and to lower yourself. What's he going to do? Go back with me to the, the very first line of this, or second line of this letter that we talked about a few weeks ago. The greeting that Paul gives to the congregation is grace and peace to you from God. What is it? Our Father. It's not God my Father. It's not God your Father. It's not God their Father. It's our Father. We got the same Father. Six times in this letter, Paul is going to address these believers in Philippi as brothers and sisters. See what Paul's doing here? This is so brilliant. So much better than I would think of to do in a sermon. This is so brilliant. He said, you're family. You are brothers and sisters. 
You share the same heavenly parent, and that makes you siblings. You are a surrogate family. And this honor game, this game of competing with honor for each other, that's off limits. Why? Because you're part of the same family. You can't do that anymore. Not only does Paul do that, but he's actually going to reimagine what honor comes from. So at the time in the, in, the, in the Roman world right now, honor comes from acts of courage on the battlefield and from offices won in the political arena or putting up a big fancy statue of yourself in the middle of a city. Okay, that's how honor is achieved in the Roman world. How is honor going to be achieved in this new community of Jesus followers? Honor is going to be given to those who act like Jesus. Honor is going to be given for those who use their status and their authority and resources in the service of others. And he's going to give an example of this in later on in the Philippians of Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus is the person who's delivering this letter to Paul. I'm sorry, delivering the resources to Paul to help him out. He almost dies. And Paul is going to say this. We'll get there in a couple weeks. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him because he almost died for the work of Christ. Did you catch that? Honor him. Honor Epaphroditus. You see what Paul's doing here? He's doing them. He's, he's not asking them to do what, some, what sounds impossible. He isn't asking them to do what's completely foreign to them. But he is tweaking things. He's asking them to start seeing each other not as people to compete with, but as brothers and sisters. To start seeing honor not attached to battles or politics, but to acting like Jesus. And Paul knows if he can actually do this, if they begin to live this out, unity is going to come. Unity is going to come. I could stand here for 30 minutes and tell you, tell I'm blue in the face, that you've got to look out for the interests of other people. And guess what? It's probably not going to make a lick of difference. Unless you can make two shifts. One, unless you can realize the massive resources you have already been given through Jesus Christ. Until it, and we're going to get there next week. This, this passage, I hope you're, as a plug here, remember, I'm asking you to memorize this passage. This is a stunning passage that we're going to get to next week. If you get your mind around here, the one who had everything gave it all up to take the form of a slave. As you start to grasp that, you're going to realize how much of Jesus' own interest he gave up for you and for me. And whatever hard, however hard that seems to us, it's going to pale in comparison to what Jesus did. Jesus is not just a model, he's a motivation. We've got to rest in what Jesus did for us. But here's the second thing. You're going to have to broaden your understanding of what family is. Because Paul's not actually asking you to do something possible. He's asking you to do something you do all the time. I've seen you, I've been here four years now, over four years, I've seen in this congregation time and time again, you put the interest of your parents who you're caring for above your own. I've seen it. You sacrifice a huge amount to care for your parents. I've seen you time and time again put the interest of your spouse above your own. We have a congregation who is faithful to their spouses right to the end. You do it. You know how to do that. I've seen you do that with your siblings. Parents. I have seen you put the interests of your children above your own time and time again. Like when does mom, or dad hopefully, when does mom finally get to eat dinner? After all the kids are served with food. When does mom finally get to bed? And hopefully dad. <laughs> slightly guilty here. When does mom finally get to bed? When all the other kids are finally, all their needs are taken care of. 
Okay? You do this. You do it already. This is what healthy families do. They rejoice in each other's victories. They grieve when they have a brother or sister who's struggling. And they come to their defense when they're under attack. Like, I've heard a lot of you brag about your kids and grandkids. I don't hear you brag about yourself a lot. What are you doing? You're lifting up the honor of your children or your grandkids. My son graduated summa cum laude. Not a lot of people are saying, hey, I I graduated summa cum laude. That's okay. It's natural. You're lifting up the honor of your children and your grandchildren. There's a reason why we call each other brothers and sisters in the church. It's not to be cute. We do it because when we sign up to follow Jesus, we are adopted into a new family, the family of God. And if if I call you brother, how can I not care for you in a time of need? If your brother comes to you and says, I'm about to be homeless, do you say, let me get you the address for the shelter? If your sister comes up to you and says, I need a ride to the hospital, do you say, let me call Uber for you? If your child graduates summa cum laude or gets a promotion at work, do you seethe with envy? No, because you're family. You share the burdens and you celebrate the victories. Paul's not asking us to do what is impossible. It sounds like it, but he's not. He's asking you to do what you already do, but to expand your understanding of family. And if you can do that, if we can do that as a congregation, if we can actually look out for each other, and I think we do this in many ways, for our brothers and sisters in faith like this, unity is going to come. Do you agree with everything with your blood relatives? No. But healthy families, you're still committed to them, right? We're not going to get to a point where we, every person in this congregation believes we can all sign the same line. Does that mean we can't have unity? No. But it's going to come through the hard work of putting their interests above our own. And really, that, that can't happen in this environment. I can say hi to you. I can ask how you're doing. I've got two minutes with you, and then we're gone, right? This has got to happen the other six days of the week. It's one of the reasons why we launched these Midway Communities that started last week. We want to give space to you to actually practice this out, to actually have space where I can in tangible and practical ways put the interests of others above myself. It's why when you become a member of this congregation, you pledge, and the congregation pledges to you, to bear each other's burdens, to assist in times of need, to share our possessions, to support each other in joy and sorrow, and to work for the common good. You commit to doing what families do. And if you're, if you're part of this congregation, I challenge you, challenge myself, when situations arrive, ask, what would I do if this were family? Because this is family. What would I do if this were my sister or my brother or my father or my son or my mother? If you're not part of this community of faith and this whole thing sounds really weird to you, like it sounds really intense and I'm not sure that's okay, I invite you to hang out with us for a while. Because I want you to get to know, not necessarily us, I want you to get to know Jesus. I want you to get to know the person why we do this. Okay? So join with us, hang out with us for a while, get to know Jesus. If you, again, if you are part of this congregation, though, you have made a serious commitment to each other. Don't forget that commitment. Okay? Don't forget that commitment. Let's pray. Our Father... We stand before you graciously made into your sons and daughters of the same family. What a gift to us, Lord, made possible through Jesus Christ. I pray that we might 
grow in our understanding of that, that that might be driven deeper and deeper inside of us, the love that Jesus has for us and what he sacrificed for us, that we might then turn and sacrifice for our brothers and sisters. I ask that we might grow into an understanding of each other, not just as part of some kind of club, but as brothers and sisters of the same family. Empower us, Lord, through your spirit. Empower us through the great model and the great motivation of Jesus, Lord. And I ask this all in his name. Amen.